I'm joined as uh, usual by Hannah Beswick. Hello. And uh, hi, Hannah. How Hello. are you doing? Can you hear me? Um, yes, I can. Jolly good. Wonderful. I can hear you. <laughs> I've just faded absolutely everything up. I think I think you're there. Let's just uh, see how it's going. And um, I'm also joined uh, by uh, Juliana Kukro. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. And uh, this is your third visit now. You're, you're an old stager now. <laughs> you're, <laughs> you've become part of the team, you see, just, just like that. And, very uh, gradually. Very, very gradually. <laughs> and um, I don't know what kind of uh, weeks you've had. Any, so anything spectacularly amazing happened to you this week? No. No, no sorry. Well, there you go. <laughs> anything spectacular amazing happened to you, uh, Juliana? Uh, not really. I started planning a dissertation. Ah. Oh, yeah? Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. we should remind people you're uh, working in a science communication degree at UWE. Yes, I am. And I am doing a dissertation on Rick and Morty. <laughs> so, so just tell please. us, so tell us about Rick and Morty. This is this is sort of based. It's a cartoon, isn't it? Based on the Back to the Future characters, sort of. I think mm, quite I loosely. Very, 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 very loosely. Is, there's there's yeah. the Doc and there's Marty, which yeah. has become Rick and Morty, yeah. I suppose. And uh, but why? I mean, I'm not going to get you to tell us your whole idea, but uh, roughly why did you choose that? Well, I just really love the TV show. It's very funny. I also think it's very clever. And it has a, a good amount of science content in it. Some of it is purely sci-fi. So it's technology and that we don't really have at the moment. But sometimes it does reflect on science uh, very accurately and I was interested in seeing how its viewers respond so if you watch Rick and Morty please contact me <laughs> <laughs> if you're a big fan of Rick and Morty yes oh right okay well uh, does this is this going to involve you watching absolutely every episode of Rick and Morty that's ever been made is that your plan it might uh but that's only a part of it because it's uh what the show is putting out there but I also want to see how people are taking it in and reacting to it. Okay. All right. Well, uh, you're listening to uh, Love and Science. We are going to talk about science in the news, science behind the news. And the first story that we're going to pick up on really should have followed straight after that, that piece of music that I played, the Kaiser Chiefs Ruby, because it starts off, doesn't it? Let it never be said that romance is dead. And it brings us to the story of Bolivia's Lonely Frog. It's a sad tale. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, it, is a, it actually is a sad tale. There's a, there's a frog. He's called Romeo. Uh, he's a Sewenkus, uh frog. And he's 10 years old. And they, this is a form of water frog. And these frogs only live typically for around 15 years and here is that this is the thing about the story when he's not uh, he's not a celebrity fro frog for no reason um he may be the very last of his species and uh, well, that's always a sad thing but um uh, researchers are busy looking for uh, a mate so they are looking far and wide in Bolivia and perhaps wider than Bolivia, I don't know, mm -hmm. um, in order to uh, find <laughs> a similar frog. 
uh, like uh, Romeo that he can mate with so that he won't end up being the, uh, well, they, the two of them won't end up being the last of their species if they do, if they do find a female frog. So um, you've been... Uh, doing yes. some work on I've this. I've been uh, uh, browsing the yeah. Bolivian newspapers. Yeah. Taking advantage of my Spanish knowledge. <laughs> so I almost never read Bolivian newspapers. Yeah. You know, and this is just something you do in your spare time. It's great. <laughs> it's very fortunate. No, well, good. So, and I, what, I, what were they saying? Well, they said that Romeo has been at the Natural History Museum uh, in Bolivia for almost 10 years. And in the first years, when he arrived, he would call very enthusiastically for a male, for a mate. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. But as the years have gone by, his calls have been diminishing. Oh. And uh, this is getting sadder. Hope. Yes. Yeah. Yes, he's losing hope. But there is this biologist called Arturo Muñoz, and uh, he leads the Bolivian Amphibian Initiative. And they, along with uh, an NGO called Global Wildlife Conservation and the Match.com website, <laughs> have launched a campaign through which they hope to raise uh, $15,000 for Romeo. How is that? How are they going to use the money for him? So um, what they will do with the money, um, which, by the way, they hope to have on valentine's day uh, yeah. okay yeah <laughs> yeah so just two days time yeah. yeah so what they want to do with this money is uh, launch 10 independent expeditions to start looking for other frogs of romeo's species and um, they are looking in streams and areas where the species was common mm. before and they're just trying to find it also, the species is endemic to Bolivia, so you can only find it there. Right, so there in is very no specific areas. Right. Yeah, no point looking anywhere else. This is where is this no. kind is found. No. Yeah, yeah, and the campaign is really cute because you have Romeo, and he has a Match.com profile, and you can <laughs> select an option to donate money. Yeah, wow. it's really for, sweet. He's got a little picture for on finding there. him a Juliet. Yeah. <laughs> So the match.com profile, uh, as you say, has got a picture and essential information. And it says, uh, not to start this off super heavy or anything, but I'm literally the last of my species. I tend to keep myself to myself and have the best nights just chilling at home, maybe binge watching the waters around me. I need another Sehuencus uh, like myself, otherwise my entire existence, as we know it, is over. Brackets, no big deal. So no, no pressure there. So, well, we wish, him, we wish him all the best. Yeah, I hope we find one. Um, I, what, I, what I didn't know is whether or not he was, it was a very common species when he first went into the Natural History Museum. Or, oh. And like, has, it, has it been a recent thing that it's become extinct or like almost extinct? Actually, I don't know, but mm. I can tell you that uh, frogs have been in danger for quite a few years now. Yes, yeah. they've been in decline for a long yeah, time. Yeah, they have been they? in decline because of climate change, but also because of uh, fungus that has been spreading like wildfire. Yeah. And it's a fungus that grows on the frog skin. So as you know, some frogs frogs breathe through their skin yeah right. so this fungus infection essentially just chokes them because oh, they right. can't breathe and this is a worldwide phenomenon. yes it is it is and uh there's been a campaign there is a lot of research currently trying to sort of 
give the frogs immunity. Mm. But some populations have suffered in Colombia and Panama, a lot of... Uh, but we've we've also seen it here, haven't we, in, in, in the UK, that frogs are, uh, yes. as I understand it, frogs and, and other reptiles like toads and... Uh, um, and other amphibians like toads are are, are um, declining. Yeah, and newts and things like that as yeah, well. Yeah, newts. Newts are endangered species, have been an endangered species for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think some of that in the UK as well is due to heavy... Um, like uh, building, building houses and towns and things, cutting populations off from one another. Um, yeah. Not enough water sources for them to breed in. That's yeah. one of the big issues here in the UK, I think, as yeah. well as potentially um, lots of disease and things like that. We should yeah. have so- we should have somebody on the show who's who's a specialist in conservation of amphibians. Yeah, I, that would be really interesting. That would be really interesting, do... and we could find out maybe what ordinary people can do. Yeah, yeah like us to to. Help uh, promote. There is a frogs. campaign online called Save the Frogs. So you can okay. have a yeah, look at that if you, you want. Go- I think that Google actually that. Bristol Zoo is involved in some conservation breeding programs with amphibians. So, I mean, we could try and get in touch with someone there. Get yeah, them on the show. Should. Indeed, indeed. Yes, we'll get the we'll get the research team onto <laughs> all it. of them. Bring yeah, them all, all in. of them. Bring them all in. And some frogs. <laughs> and some frogs. <laughs> um, and. Uh, Staying with sort of a biological theme, and uh, uh, but this is a sort of evolutionary and uh, other uh, kind of ideas coming in here. Um, Cheddar Man. Now, n- um, of course, we're broadcasting uh, live from uh, Bristol in the southwest of England. You may be listening. Well, who knows where you're listening? We're delighted uh, to have you wherever wherever you are. But about 17 miles, I think, less than 20 miles anyway from here, is Cheddar, famous for its cheese. More about that later in the show. And um, uh, for its caves, uh, so the Ch- the Cheddar Caves, and uh, about a hundred years ago, uh, a, a, a man was found skeleton skeletal uh, remains of a of a ten thousand year old man, and uh, he was known as Cheddar Man. I don't know if he's got another name. Sometimes they like to call them things like Pete or whatever. <laughs> My favourite is Pete Bog. Yeah. He was found in a peat bog. Um, <laughs> I saw where you were going with that. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> um, but Cheddar, Cheddar Man, as, as his name, was found in Goff's Cave uh, in Cheddar 100 years ago. And um, y- uh, some researchers, including the University College London and the uh, Natural History Museum in London, have been doing some DNA testing. They actually drilled into the skull. Uh, of Cheddar Man took out a tiny uh, amount uh, of uh, bone, bone dust. Yeah, bone dust, just to test it, and uh, they concluded that uh, this ancestor is an ancestor to about ten percent of British white people. Now that that's important because they found that uh, he would would in fact have had dark blue eyes, dark to black skin, and curly hair. And uh, one of the researchers said, the thing is that uh, we uh, don't associate, when you start looking at ancient peoples, the colour of skin is a much more fluid thing mm-hmm. uh, than people have come to believe in, in uh, modern, people think in, 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 in modern times. And uh, that, in, that in fact it was the need for more vitamin D yeah. that drove 
the change of skin from uh, dark to white, what, what we call white skin, pink skin. What? Um, why would that be? Do you do you think? Uh, why would it be that it the drove cha- the change in colour? Yeah. Um, I think it's it's to do with how the light penetrates into your skin. Right, okay. Um, if it's paler, the light can, can penetrate deeper. And, and, yes. and, and, and light um, helps manufacture vitamin D, light, yes. in, light on the skin. Yes, light is essential for the metabolism right. of vitamin D, the synthesis of it in right. your skin. Right, And when people started migrating up north, they just hadn't enough sunlight um, to synthesize enough vitamin D. So this had two solutions. Basically, one was the evolution of lighter skin color, mm-hmm. and another one was when adults um, became tolerant to lactose. Right. Because they could also take some of the sugars and the vitamin D that were in the milk. Right, oh, okay. Wow. Okay, so that was a big change. Becoming yeah. tolerant to, yeah, uh, to cow, cow's milk. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's 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 a, it's a fascinating story. I tell you something that I, I found also quite amazing about this that I, I didn't know. Um, it's not, I mean, it's not a huge surprise, but it turns out that about uh, six thousand five hundred BC mm-hmm. to around about six thousand two hundred B- BC that that always com- used to confuse me when I was a child. But of course, it, it means six thousand five hundred years before the christian era to 6200 years so it's going the numbers are, are the going one, the, yeah, the yeah. other way yeah. um uh, so it, it during that period there was a bridge which is called doggerland okay uh, yeah. in fact we still have a fishing area called dogger bank okay which pops up if you if you listen to radio 4's um uh, storm warnings, ah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know the uh, the 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 shipping the, forecast. The shipping forecast. Yeah. Uh, it'll it'll you'll see Dogger Bank, and it was um, basically that uh, East Anglia, the great bulge mm-hmm. on the east side of the country, connected directly to uh, what is now the Netherlands. Mm, and amazing. it was just continuous and it was a huge swathe of land mm-hmm. thicker than wider than um uh the east Ang- east anglia is now and going way working its way right up to sort of newcastle and beyond what is present day newcastle and beyond uh stretching right across to um the netherlands right. and so it's thought that uh uh, people migrated from Africa, from the Middle East, and so on, over to... Uh, and could just in, do so over land in, instead yeah, of... Yeah, over to what is now Britain. Yeah, yeah that's amazing. Yeah. Yes, that's that's some of something I read as well. Yeah. About the origins of Cheddarman. Yes. And interestingly enough, he didn't have any genes for light skin. Mm. Yes. Uh, but researchers found that there are three separate genes that can give you light skin. So it just shows that the history was far more complex and different populations in different times yes. Had, yes. had selection for this trait to evolve. And, and, ah. uh, and of course, people, populations were, were moving into Britain and then moving out again yes. because of the Ice Ages. Well, apparently, the Ice Ages were coming and going with quite uh, a high degree of frequency 10,000 years ago. And uh, the last ice age just sort of petered out before Cheddar Man, just before Cheddar Man came and settled. 
Yeah. So, well, I think it's time for a bit more music, and uh, we're going to uh, look at uh, what is uh, causing uh, a lot of uh, heat and light and, uh, well, astronomical noise in the universe. So you're listening to Love and Science and 93.2 fm or bcfmradio.com and if you want to uh, go to uh, bcfm uh, bcfmradio.com uh, website you can see um, all kinds of programs that uh, the fabulous bcfm uh, radio puts out and um, you can also go to love and science and uh, listen to uh, previous programs we also have a cut down version of the show it's not it doesn't cut down the word it cuts down the music for busy people um and uh, our colleague who's usually with us uh, andrew glester um makes that um uh, each week or i know that hannah's been yeah, uh, doing you know, it as well the last couple of weeks man yes there you go doing <laughs> doing doing a bit of editing and uh, we just cut out the uh, music uh, so that uh, if you just want to listen to the uh, the talk on the show you can get that and that's uh, that's uh, podbean Podbean podcast. It's uh, and again, you just look for love and science. Love and science Podbean. I think. Yeah, I think you can go to loveandscience.podbean.com. Yeah. Just Google love and science Podbean, and it'll come up as the first result. There we go. So now we've we, we've had a couple of uh, biological topics. We're looking at some other uh, news, uh, some science news, and uh, there is um, an asteroid. Okay. Uh, here's the news. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. So, uh, I should have played this straight, talked about this straight after uh, the Amy Winehouse song, Our Day Will Come. <laughs> because, How's this going? Are you worried about this? There's an asteroid set for close contact, uh, close uh, approximation to the to the Earth. Now, just before anybody gets worried and runs for, well, where would you run to? A that's the, yes, that's the thing. It would have to be a, a very special bunker indeed. Mm. Um, uh, actually, there's an asteroid coming. Uh, it's going to come 43. We're very. This is very precise. 43,300 miles. Um, distance from the Earth as it flies by on Friday. This Friday. This Friday. It's coming well, on Friday, twenty-two twenty-seven GMT. Are we, are we Greenwich Mean Time at the moment? I, yes, I, we are. Yeah. So, so it will be at twenty-seven seven minutes past ten. So, will we be Friday. able to see this? Thing? I don't think so. I don't think so because it's uh, it's going to skim past. It's forty meters in size. Now, forty oh, meters is quite big. Quite I mean, sizable, but it's quite sizable, but space. not not the sort of thing you can see from forty three thousand miles away. No, I mean you wouldn't be able to see a double decker bus, a would you, from forty three thousand miles away? I mean, pro- not with my eyesight. No, <laughs> you wouldn't be able to see two double decker buses forty three thousand miles away. So I don't think we will. But they keep track on these things nasa um uh there's a a nasa funded uh project um that uh, looks at uh near earth objects and uh, but we only found out about this five days ago <laughs> so, yeah, it's a bit of notice really that's what, yes, it's a little <laughs> that's what bit, i felt a little bit of short notice uh, but it is it is relatively small yeah and uh, it not, w- pros- it, not posing yeah. a threat either so that's not so bad now it's the, not gonna kill us it's yeah. not gonna kill the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs it came 66 million years ago mm. and it was i believe more than a kilometer in length really? so that's different isn't it 
that's so huge that's huge you see something a kilometer long coming in the sky Mm. um it's called asteroid asteroid 2018 cb because it's not worth giving it a more exotic name Mm. than that Uh, but it may be bigger than the chelyabinsk um asteroid that exploded in the atmosphere over russia uh, five years ago 2013 Mm -hmm. and uh, of course um, that was quite worrying it's quite important that we know these things are coming and they and they will explode in the atmosphere that's what they do they heat to uh, uh, a tremendous temperature and then because of the speed at which they're traveling usually in excess of 250,000 miles an hour and they explode yeah uh because of the water inside of them and and, and, and so right. on just they just burn up uh, and never reach yeah. the ground basically but it's important to know uh mm-hmm. th- what these things are because if you're a russian military or american or british or anybody else military yeah. people and suddenly see a massive explosion in your atmosphere you think you're under attack but That's, it isn't oh yeah. god no yeah it's space throwing rocks at us take that earth rather rude yeah very (laughs) rude indeed anyway that's coming by on uh friday Friday. um uh one of the uh uh, researchers who uh talks uh about these things a chap called paul chodas said asteroids of this size do not often approach this close apparently it's one fifth of the distance between the earth and the moon uh, mm-hmm. And um, it only happens once or twice a year. So it's going to it's going to pass by at one fifth of the distance. At one fifth things. of okay. the distance, so or really close. Yeah, uh, for what, like we said, forty three three forty three thousand three hundred miles mm-hmm. away, um, which is roughly twice as far as the belt of satellites that we put around the Earth in geostationary Mm. orbit so um it's close but really nothing to worry about you don't have to cancel dinner dates cinema plans it's going to be absolutely fine Mm. so yeah um and uh there's another astronomical story now normally andrew picks these up but it's left it's left to me so if he's hearing this he may be mocking me mercilessly as i try and make sense (laughs) of it um but um i will i will attempt to explain this there's a strange phenomenon called fast radio bursts known as frbs and um they were first discovered in 2007 there's a uh, a radio telescope in australia called the parks radio telescope and it found these things that very powerful bursts of energy radio energy and um they they wanted to know what it was and so people thought well it could be an exploding star uh could be uh there's some very odd things called cosmic strings Mm -hmm. and it could be those vibrating intensely or it could be aliens it could be be aliens um uh broadcasting (laughs) to us possibly alien radio alien radio yeah or television 30 (laughs) sources were pinpointed but only one of those flares repeatedly and it's called frb 121102 and it was pinpointed last year to an unremarkable looking dwarf galaxy a little galaxy three billion light years from earth so just a reminder that means it took the light and the radio waves and anything else coming from there three billion anything 
that was electromagnetic in origin three billion years to get to us. So how are you, how are we able to pick it up if it's so far away? Uh, well, um, radio telescopes can pick these things up, and the thing about them is we pick them up because they are incredibly strong. Um, the burst has they calculate coming from that distance the burst must originally had a power get this mm. of 500 million suns oh. every millisecond that's a you know that's our own suns <laughs> wow. 500 million million of them going every millisecond mm. and um what um what they were saying was uh, if we if there was one on the other side of our own galaxy yeah uh, so this has obviously come from outside of our galaxy. If there was one just on the other side of our galaxy from us, the the radiation coming off of it, the the bursts of radiation coming off of, of, of something like this, would complete would make radio transmissions on Earth completely impossible. Wow. It would overwhelm everything. Yeah. Your mobile phones wouldn't work. Uh, you wouldn't be able to watch television. You wouldn't be able to listen to the radio. It wouldn't make any sense at all uh, because uh, everything would be disrupted. Um, so the, there's a theory. So I'm quite serious. Is it an exploding stars? Is it these cosmic strings? Is it aliens? But um, uh, some researchers, there's a, a chap called Jason Hessels, and he has a, a colleague, co-author of a new paper. Um, he's an astronomer at the Netherlands Institute for Radio Astronomy in a place called Dwingaloo, which doesn't sound very Dutch, but it is. It's a Dutch town, uh, <laughs> Dwingaloo. And um, he says that they think it is a neutron star, which is just 10 or 20, year, or 20 years old in an extreme magnetic environment. Now, a neutron star is something which is on its way to becoming a black hole. It's okay. very, very dense. I think I've got some uh, uh, figures here um, about neutron stars. They are some of the most, among the most exotic objects in the universe. They're only 12 miles wide, uh, but mm -hmm. a teaspoon of a neutron star material has a mass of about a billion tons. Wow. So extremely dense. Extremely dense. You should never buy one as a present no. <laughs> for someone because they'd never be able to move it. And uh, at the core is a soup of pure neutrons. And um, the crust is another one of these fun facts. Uh, the crust of a neutron star is 10 billion times stronger than steel. Because it's just basically pretty taking... It's pretty strong. It's pretty strong. So it's, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I just think... My main reason for not thinking that it's aliens yeah. is because needing that amount of energy to be produced per second to make that radio wave is just just not possible. I don't think don't think an alien race could do that. It's too much energy. <laughs> that's the first reason I don't think it might be aliens. Yes, yes. There are other it's reasons, a, but that's my first thought. It's a big ask, isn't it? Yeah. But but of course, it would be too much of an investment. I think <laughs> to just make a make a radio wave at us. But there are there are scientists saying, well, maybe we've misunderstood what's happening between the transmission and when it gets here. There may be some amplification. Uh, there may something? be some amplification right. going on, yeah. you see, mm -hmm. and uh, all of this uh, kind of thing. So, so um, uh, some scientists genuinely have a, an open mind uh, to the fact that they they could be signals, they could be beacons saying, mm -hmm. "Hello, we're here," you know. But if they're three billion light years away, it'll take us a while. 
uh, to get to them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. Travelling at the speed of light, in fact, about three billion years. We look at science in the news and science uh, behind the news. And I'm joined by Juliana Kukuro and Hannah Bestwick, as usual, uh, for the show. No Andrew this week, uh, but we've had a stab already at doing some astronomical stuff uh, without him. And uh, we're going to carry on with some biological stuff now, because um, it turns out that plants maybe thinking or maybe not what's uh, it's quite a quite a <laughs> statement that, a that one that a leap? I, I think it would be considered rather a leap um what what scientists have been doing is they've been trying out using anesthetics that we use on people and animals on plants to see if it have see if I'm not sure what they're looking for in the article it stated they were very vague about what the actual intentions of the study was um, but they tried doing things like um, putting plants in glass chambers and exposing them to ether or like soaking their roots in lidocaine um, to see what would happen in a very kind of blue sky open Hmm. Uh, open-ended research okay. style yeah what they found um, they were looking at two kinds of plants that I can I can remember off the top of my head. One was pea shoots, um, young pea plants, which what they do is normally when they're growing, they will flail around. Um, you have to speed up the footage, a video of them to see it, but they're flailing around trying to look for something to cling on to, to climb, on, climb up. And they looked at Venus flytraps, which have small hairs inside the, the traps. And when one is triggered, there's a timer that, uh, an internal kind of timer that needs another hair to be touched before it will close to um it's basically a signal to say that whatever triggered the first hair is still in there and it can capture the fly Mm. what they found was when they exposed these plants to the anesthetics they no longer responded to the same stimulus so they were essentially uh they were they were unresponsive in a similar way to that people become unresponsive when they are made unconscious through these anesthetics, the pea shoots sort of furled up and stopped flailing around looking uh, for something right. when they'd been, when they'd been an- anesthetized. And the Venus flytraps no longer closed their, uh, the more, the, the trap when it, was, when it was stimulated in the same way mm. that would have caused it to close before. Um, that... To, to me, when I, when I read that, what that indicates to me is that the anaesthetics block some pathways yes. in plants which stop their normal behavior, their normal um, process, their normal re- response to stimulus. But there's been some people suggesting that it could mean that plants are conscious and that when we give them anaesthetics, it makes them unconscious in the (laughs) same way that people are. (laughs) I I do personally think that's quite a reach uh, to go from one to the other. There was one... uh, But a great headline. An excellent headline. (laughs) uh, One researcher... from the University of Van in Germany, so I just had to quickly read that, um, suggested that potentially this could eventually lead to finding out if plants experience joy or um, panic or sort of pain in the same way that we do. And although in, plants do respond to things like uh, injury by creating chemicals similar to anaesthetic, I think that that is... Uh, uh, to me, it yeah. sounds like quite quite a reach to say that they might they might be having secret internal yes. thoughts yeah. uh, in in the same way. And even if they do have things like joy and, and pain, they would be very different to the way we experience them. I think. What do you What do you think, Juliana? I I just think that plants communicate through like a variety of means, chemically and yeah. uh, 
with movement, they respond to gravity, they respond to light. Um, so yes, yeah, like I mean, bacteria. I don't know. Like bacteria, they, of course, they have been sending signals to pollinators for years in the way they color their yeah. flowers. Yeah. So yeah, they they release chemicals when they've been injured to indicate to surrounding plants that there is something there that's eating them. So yes. the surrounding plants will start to uh, release a chemical that will um, deter, de- yeah, deter, deter that, the that predators. animal from going on to the next one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they do communicate in things, but it may just be that um, they're making some bold but headline catching statements. What, what makes it interesting to me is the fact that Plants and animals uh, just separated evolutionarily for, I don't know, many, 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 many years ago. And it would it's interesting that the signaling pathways are somehow related in mm. the sense that they are responding to these anesthetics in the same way. Yeah. So for me, that's quite fascinating evolutionarily. Yeah, it, it is absolutely but fascinating. I also agree it's, it's a leap to call them conscious or unconscious. Yeah. And of course, there must be organisms that are on the border between you know that would give you a bit of a problem classifying it oh yeah I mean, there's, there's there uh, we, when i was in school we learned about the U, is it the euglena which mm-hmm. kind of swims around yeah, oh, yeah it has the a tail but it but it's also um it's really a, a plant but it behaves a bit like an animal yeah so um uh, you know, it's 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 there. There must be some curious anom- anomalies. Yeah, there absolutely will be because it's never just um, as simple as saying there are two kinds of things: some are plants and some are animals. There's there's lots of um, things that fall in the middle um, that that have been very difficult to class previously and are still sometimes difficult to class even with genetic analysis um, as to whether or not they're um, yeah plant or animal. Okay, so. Um, well, you'd be nice to your plants. That's the thing. I'm very nice it's to always my plants. Always important I love to be nice plants. to your plants. You never know what they're thinking. Okay. And, and um, there's an, another story about an ancient spider. I think you've had a look at this, Juliana. What did you think? Uh, well, yeah, it's very interesting. It's a fossil that yeah. researchers found at street markets in Myanmar. Okay, yeah. which is modern-day Burma. Uh, yes. Yeah. Sorry, and yes, modern-day Burma. That's what we call it now. Myanmar, yeah? Yes, Myanmar, yeah. yeah. Uh, sorry. sorry, carry on. <laughs> I, English is tricky with no, pronunciation, no. but no, anyway. It's, it's, it's me making sure everybody <laughs> knows which bit of the world we're talking about, because yeah, there's so, still people so going, where is Myanmar? Yeah. So in Southeast Asia, they've had amber mines for quite a while, yeah. and what they found will be the nightmare of all arachnophobes, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because it is a creature that has a spider-like front, uh, but with a tail that it's twice its body length, uh, very much in the way a scorpion tail acts. Mm. So this is interesting. The The fossil also has uh, silk glands, so it could produce its own silk. Mm. Uh, but what the scientists are saying is that the tail wouldn't actually spit poison the way a scorpion tail does. It would be more of a sensor sensory organ, sort of like an antenna, if you... Ah, if okay. you will call it that, that's interesting. It is. It's, it's, um, and and, and um, as a, a it's quite ra- interesting because it's very much uh, an an intermediary organism. So it's not all the way spider, but also not all the way scorpion. So it's always one of those things that gives uh, credit to evolutionary theory 
every yes. time you find sort of this like missing steps yes um, apparently it looks a bit like a golden orb spider which yes. is uh, um in australia isn't it they have these large golden orb spiders yeah it has some similarity yeah. to whip scorpions as well which have yeah. like a long antenna thing on the back looks really interesting and i think it's only about 2.5 millimeters in length did i read that right i think so yes i think it is very small but it's also quite remarkable the state of preservation that was found in this fossil because this is something quite rare obviously the earth has had a chaotic history so to find something this well preserved mm. is extremely valuable for scientists and it was just there on the streets so we've just got a um, a few moments to talk about a, another story which is to do with cheese uh, either of you addicted to cheese oh we've got uh, would say addicted we've got john ford in the studio as well so uh uh, I don't. Oh, a little, a little early, John, because I know you're. I, I, I know you're getting ready for your uh, your, your, your show. But uh, I'll give you a microphone if you want. There you go. Uh, are you addicted to cheese? I, I, I like cheese. Yeah, it doesn't like me much, but I, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From a weight point of view, I'm talking. Um, yeah, no, I like a bit of cheese. Why? What have you got on cheese? Well, the st- the story that we've got on cheese is apparently uh, cheese triggers the same part of the brain uh as when you have uh, hard drugs uh so so that so they've found that um if you uh, this is the story if you find yourself hovering around the cheese board it may be there's a scientific explanation that m- means you can't tear yourself away because it has the same chemical that's found in addictive drugs well all cheese all cheese it must come from the milk, though, surely. Yeah, yeah. and it's from a, a chemical which is found in milk, which actually you can make plastic out of, I think. It's called casein. Oh, right, OK. And uh, that's the thing. It gives you a feeling of euphoria, uh, very similar to those you get with hard drug addiction. So there you go. Imagine when, when this news gets out, you'll have people selling cheese at some extortionate rate on the, <laughs> yeah. on the high street. <laughs> potentially they could treat obesity and food addiction the same way they do with um, drug oh. addiction. Yeah. Yeah. So, they, so there you go. Uh, there, there is an explanation for it. Is, is there a particular cheese um, or any cheese? Uh, no, any cheese. Oh, right. Any yeah. cheese. Well, the fermenting process creates this uh, thing called casein. Any stronger with the maturity of the cheese? or uh, That I don't know. Okay, that'd be interesting I, to I find out. I can't mm. tell you, yeah. So, uh, we're near the end of the show. And uh, as I said, you just would have heard uh, John Ford before. So don't forget to stay tuned uh, to uh, uh, John Ford getting Bristol home after the news. Uh, is there anything we've left out, John? Oh, loads. Yeah, loads. Yeah. Can, go can on, I, then. Can I just go back on what you were saying? Because I was quite interested in the uh, whether plants have got feelings. And, yeah, yeah, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I remember yeah. seeing on the TV years and years ago, I think it might have been Tomorrow's World, some fella um, hooked up an oscilloscope to, to plants, yeah. Yeah. trees and all sorts of things, yeah. and discovered that when you, you broke off the stem or snapped, you took a leaf off a plant, it registered on yeah. the oscilloscope. So yeah. it was, there was some reaction, and yeah. they put that down to feeling pain. Oh yes, but I'm, 
Yeah, but I think... Or stress, or yeah. something. And it, he, I mean, it he was so that. frightened of even walking on the grass in the air. <laughs> or even cutting the grass. <laughs> well. But going back to, you know... You but know, he was still breaking the branches off. Yeah, but it's anaesthetic. I mean, yeah. we're going to get to a point where you have to spray the lawn before you mow it, because yeah. you're frightened that you, <laughs> Inject yeah. the tree before you cut a branch or, off. Or is it just the equivalent of having your hair cut? No, in my case, that doesn't matter, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but uh, does it hurt? I, I don't know. It doesn't hurt when you have your hair cut. So would it hurt when you? But but it's a very because feeling pain is a very sophisticated thing. So, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, so yeah, it would yeah. be uh, quite a stretch, I guess, to say. Uh, well, just because it gave off a signal mm. meant that mm. it was hurting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, just time for something that happened on this day in history, science-wise. Uh, 1941, this very day, the first injection of what do you think took place? into a human test subject. His name was Albert Alexander. He was an Oxford policeman. He'd scratched his Ooh. face on a rose bush. Was it antibiotic? Oh. It, well, uh, penicillin. penicillin. Yeah. penicillin. Oh. First day today in 1941. Yeah, didn't they... They he, didn't have enough of it for the full treatment, so they used right. to recite, like, the cancer to urine. He died two weeks later <laughs> yeah. of his injuries. Yeah. But it was, it was the, the start of what we all know now. Yeah. Poor fellow. Mm. Yeah. So, happy birthday, penicillin. Yeah. In, uh, in that form, in, in terms of, uh, you know... Absolutely. Scratches and yeah, that, I mean, he was exceedingly unlucky, wasn't he? Because uh, yeah. they got, yes, it works. Oh, we haven't got enough. No, they <laughs> ran out. So that's a real shame. But 1941 doesn't seem that long ago. No, uh, no that, that, it doesn't. That took it, place. it doesn't. Well, look, it's been great having your company, as always, uh, for Love and Science. Big thanks to Hannah, Juliana, and, uh, of course, stay tuned uh, with John. It's big thanks to John, of course, and stay tuned uh, for getting Bristol home afterwards. Have yourselves a very nice evening. Join us again next week. Bye.